Well, if you would, this morning, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Exodus, chapter 1. Surrender from the viewpoint of a slave. And this morning, specifically, looking at the life of a slave. Last week, we veered slightly from our topic of surrender to see surrender from the viewpoint of a slave. And as we talked about the phrase, I am a Christian, and heard about many who gave up their lives as followers of Christ... We talked about what it means to be a follower, and that is really a key in serving Jesus Christ, is that we are willing to follow whatever direction He wants us to go in leading uh, leading us. And I trust that you were challenged to live with more passion as a follower of Christ last week. Um, I learned much and was reminded much about the life of a slave as I was studying for this week's message. More than likely, the topic of slavery is nothing like you might have imagined. For many of you, uh, what you think of when you hear the word slave or slavery is not likely the correct image of slavery uh, as we know it from biblical times. Uh, In fact, slavery was quite the norm. According to Murray Harris's book, The Slave of Christ, as much as one-fifth of the population of Rome, nearly 12 million people uh, were said to be slaves. Also, contrary to our thinking, slaves practice almost every type of job and occupation you can imagine. From teaching school, to practicing medicine, to working in the fields, to managing shops. And oftentimes it was difficult to know who was a slave and who was not if you were to solely base it on their appearance or what they did as a trade. It was very common. It was not out of the norm. It was not the unexpected. Contrary to popular belief, most slaves were well taken care of. They rarely worried about their next meal. They rarely worried about their lodging. And they rarely worried about their daily needs. More often than not, their masters took good care of them. It was not at all uncommon for slaves, once they earned their freedom, to purchase slaves themselves. And that is something I never heard of before. Um, But that was a common practice. Once a a slave earned his freedom, they would oftentimes purchase their own slaves. It was a common practice. Um, Oftentimes the lingering possibility of their own future freedom was reason enough to cooperate with their master's commands. Now, however, having said what I said, slavery was not always easy. Not by a long shot. Remember, a slave was, and always was, until their freedom came, a piece of property. So it was not always easy. However, some slaves loved their circumstances while others despised them. So let me ask you this question this morning. What made the difference between one slave and another? Their master. Their master. So if you would, follow along as I read this morning from Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to read several verses in Exodus chapter 1, and then into chapter 3, and then chapter 6. And we can kind of get a picture of what it was like. Because remember, the difference between one slave scenario and circumstances and another's was the master. So Exodus chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. A new king had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. 
Let us deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further, and if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built uh, Pithom and Ramses as, as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Then into chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. And I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites cry for help that has come to me. And I have also seen the way of the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And then into chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you are going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of this land because of my strong hand. Then God spoke to Moses telling him, I am Yahweh. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great act of judgment. I will take care of you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and will give it to you as a possession." I am Yahweh. You notice here in the text that there is a struggle between what is reality and what God wants. And you see the struggle lies in what? The difference in the two masters. And we see very clearly there are two masters here. There is the king, there is Pharaoh, who has said, I am afraid that there are too many of these Israelite children. There's too many of them. We must oppress them. We must work them hard. We must be ruthless to them because otherwise they may join the enemy and overtake us. So there is the master who is the king, but then there's also God who wants to be their master. And here's the difference here. The first master was the king. And the first king was, or the first master is selfish. He obviously wants what's best for himself and his own kingdom. He's fearful for his own comfort. I mean, if things get out of hand, if, if we don't put a, put the brakes on, if we don't squelch what's taking place amongst the children of Israel, if we don't stop what is going on, we may be discomforted in some way. In some way, our comfort as we know it will be rudely abrupted. 
And so the bottom line is we can't keep going this direction. We have to stop. We have to press them. We have to be ruthless to them. We have to make sure that they can't multiply any further. And of course, you know that God worked even in the difficult times, right? I mean, even as the king comes forward and says we have to throw away all the man-childs and all the, all the, you know, the males that are born, and the bottom line is even through all that, God protected his children. And even through all that, it says that they even multiplied and grew greater. So God's hand was on them, even in their sinfulness, even in their lack of obedience. The king abused the children of Israel as slaves. And we said, a life of a slave could be good, and most of the time was, but it could also be the harsh reality that they were nothing more than a piece of property. To the king, from a human perspective, that's exactly what they were. But to God, it was much more than that. It was greater than that. And we see that here. And we see the true master. He wanted what was best for his people. And we see that clearly in, in, in Exodus chapter 3. He said, I want to take you out of this land. He said, I've heard your groanings. I've heard your cries by reason of your taskmasters. I know that they are not treating you kind. I know that they are being ruthless to you. He says, I don't want that for you. And that is so awesome to consider. That God wants what is best for His children. Isn't that awesome? God truly wants what is best for us as His children. So He wanted to get Him out of that. Why? Because He cares for His people. He cares for what's taking place. And we see this in the heart of the, of the Master. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, it says this, Now if you will listen to Me and carefully keep My covenant, you will be My own possession out of all the peoples. And the idea behind slavery is that there is a possession. There is a property. And God was saying, if you'll listen to Me, you will be My possession. In other words, God says, I will own you. I will take care of you as My, as my prized possession. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 55, he says this, For the Israelites are my slaves. They are my slaves that I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So he makes it very clear that these children of Israel, they might be under the hand of Pharaoh. They might be under the bondage of Pharaoh. But he says they are my people. They are my slaves. They are my possession. And over and over They had been delivered to serve a new master, God Himself. Because God loves His children, His property, His slaves. He had rules as to how His people were to be treated. In fact, we see this again in in Leviticus chapter 25. And we see it begin reading in verse uh, 35. Um, some of the rules that had to be instilled. And as I said before, it was not uncommon for these slaves not to have to worry about their lodging. They didn't have to worry about their food. They didn't have to worry about day-to-day necessities for the most part because God had instilled principles by which the slave owners had to uh, participate in. Verse 34 says this, or verse 35 says this, If your brother comes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as a foreigner, as a temporary resident, so that he can continue to live among you. Do not proffer or take interest from him, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You are not to to lend him your silver with interest or sell him your food for profit. I am Yahweh your God. Now listen to this. He says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. What's he saying here? He said, I have exemplified in what I have done what you are to do as owners, as slaves, as brothers really in Christ. He said, I'm the one that brought you out. I'm the one that put you in a good place. Now here's how you're to treat one another. 
And he's talking to them as what? You're my property. You're my possession. You're my slaves. So he comes on verse 39. If your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you, you must not force him to be a, to do slave labor. Let him stay with you as a hired hand or temporary resident. He may work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released from you and may return to his clan and his ancestral property. They are not to be sold as slaves because they are my slaves that I have bought out of the land of Egypt. Now think about that just for a moment. He says you cannot sell them as slaves. Why? Because they're already owned. And who is the owner? Who is the master? God. So God made it very clear. They're my property. And because they're my property, this is how they are to be treated. They're to be treated with respect. Then verse 43 says this, You are not to rule over them harshly, but fear your God. I mean, think about that. If we would fear God, if we would put God first, if we would instill God's principles in how these things were to take place, there would be a different outcome. But because God loves His children, His property, His slaves, He had principles as to how they were to be treated. But here's the point. It really does matter who your master is. It really does matter who your master is. In fact, let me, let me just share several passages here. We spent uh, almost a year looking in the book of James. Uh, I won't do that to you again. Um, James chapter 1, if you would, turn your Bibles there. James chapter 1. I want you to notice several people who consider themselves to be slaves. Actually, let me back up. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul's viewpoint of this matter. Paul's viewpoint. Paul says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and singled out for God's good news. Paul considered himself to be a slave. A slave, yet an apostle. A slave, a possessed, a possession of Jesus Christ, yet an apostle at the same time to serve. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 is one of my favorite verses. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. And I think this is a great principle for many of us to apply. It says, For am I now trying to win the favor of people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be the what? Slave or servant of Christ. The bottom line is Paul, or Paul is saying here, the bottom line is this. I'm not here to please you. Isn't it amazing how we can be so selfish in life? We put our expectations on others. We expect them to do what we want them to do. And the bottom line is we get ticked off when our expectations are not met. Because the bottom line is I want you to perform a certain way. I want you to do a certain thing. And if you don't, well, then I'm upset. But Paul makes it very clear. He says, now am I trying to win the favor of people or of God? Because you can't do both. Not often. See, we have to choose who we're going to serve. And the bottom line, if it comes down between me serving you or serving God, guess who's going to lose? I'm here to serve God. Because if I were still trying to please people, I should not be the slave of Christ. And Paul says the line is drawn. I can't serve everybody equally. In Philippians chapter 1, 1, once again, slaves of Christ Jesus to all the saints in, G- in Jesus Christ. 
So the bottom line is, once again, Paul says, I am a slave here to serve those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, I am one of Christ's possessions for the purpose of serving others. And then he goes on in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Slave, yet an apostle. Why? To build up the faith of God's elect. Over and over, Paul says, I am a slave. I am free to serve God as his slave. I'm here to fulfill a purpose. Now, Paul considered himself God's property because God was his master. Now as we come into James chapter 1, verse 1, we see another few people who also consider themselves to be slaves. In James 1, 1 says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So James also considered himself a slave. But as a slave, he was not about his own business. He was about serving others. In this case, it was to the twelve tribes that were dispersed across uh, Asia. So the bottom line is, he wasn't there to serve himself. Um, as a slave, he relinquished his rights. So how do we know that? Well, James chapter 4, verses 13 and 15 says this. Verse 13 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you, you are like a smoke that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, he relinquished his rights. It was not about what he wanted to do. But as God's slave, he said, if God wills, we will do this or that. That totally goes against the culture in which we live, does it not? We plan our calendars. We we make plans, which is not a bad thing. God says, let all things be done decently in order. So we write things on the calendar. But the problem is this. The calendar revolves around what pleases us rather than what pleases God. He says, you should say this, if the Lord wills, if this be what God wants, because remember, I'm his property, I'm his possession, I'm here as his slave to do what he wants to do as my master. So if the Lord wills, if he says it's okay, if he agrees with it, then we can do this or that. But see, life is not about what I want to do, it's about what he wants me to do. So they willingly submitted themselves to the will of their master. Peter came to the same conclusion. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, says Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for what purpose? To those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he says, once again, I'm serving those fellow believers. I'm here to serve. Um, notice Jude. One of the second to last book of the Bible, Jude 1 verse 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God, the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. So once again, called, loved by God, the Father. So he says, I'm a slave to those who are fellow believers. And then in Revelation Chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John over and over. We are his slaves. It's an amazing thing to consider here. What is a slave? 
What is the purpose of a slave? What is he there for? Why did God allow them to become his possessions? Well, you know, here's the thing. We can see all the examples here. Paul says, I'm a slave, over and over again, in all the Pauline epistles. Uh, James says, I'm a slave to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter, I'm a slave to those who are called. Jude, he considers himself a slave. John considers himself a slave. But here's the deal. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3. It says, And there will be... And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his what? Slaves will serve him. It's amazing. Who's the only group of people that will be in heaven? Those who are what? Slaves. Those who are saved. Those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, right? Those who know Jesus Christ have a relationship with him, right? We're on the same page. If that's the only group that will be in heaven, and then he says, who will be serving him? His slaves. What's that make you and I? That know Jesus Christ is our Savior. What? Say it again louder. Slaves. Slaves. Isn't that amazing? We are his possession. If we know Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with Him. We are His children. We are His property. We are His possession. We are His slaves. And one day we will be gathered around the throne to do what? Serve Him. But you know what? It doesn't start there. It starts here. On this earth. Just as it did for Paul. Just as it did for James. Just as it did for Peter. Just as it did for uh, Jude. Just as it did for John. It starts here where we're at. As I observe these great men who consider themselves to be slaves of God and of Christ Jesus, I see this common denominator throughout all of them. None of them, none of them existed to please themselves. They didn't have the right. Remember we said last week that slaves had to relinquish their own rights. It's kind of the idea as we talked about in the movie Ben-Hur and all the under rowers who were in the bottom of the ship. One man could not choose to row when he wanted and mess everything up. And if he did, there were severe consequences. But the bottom line is they rowed to the beat of the master's drum. They relinquished what they wanted to do to do the will of the master. Period. No questions asked. They relinquished their rights as people because they were now possessions. They were property. The common denominator between all these men who they themselves called themselves slaves was that they were not there to please themselves. Next week we're going to continue to look at the ownership of a slave, but today in closing I would like to make a few general observations. First, like the children of Pharaoh's bondage, we are all slaves, but to who? We're all slaves, but to who? We are all possessions or property, but of who to who? Second, as God's children, our Master cares for us, loves us, and wants nothing but His best for us. 
And sometimes we forget that. I think for a moment when I consider the children of Israel, God said over and over, I heard their cries. I heard how their taskmasters beat them and they worked them very difficultly. I, I know everything that's taking place. I'm God. I know all things. But he says, I'm here to deliver them. I want something better for them. And third, those who claim to be God's slaves did not live for themselves. So three questions in closing. Who or what owns you? Who or what is your master? Who or what owns you? Who or what is your master? And I think that's a simple question to answer. I think it would really be answered by answering this question, what is it that we live for? What is it that we live for? And that can be different for every one of us. Do we live for the next best thing to come down the pike? That will enslave us. Do we live for the here and the now and what brings me most pleasure and what gratifies me as a person? That will enslave us. And we will become its property. If it... Do we live for our family members? Do we live for our children? Do we live for our parents? What is it that we are living for? If we honestly answer that question, that will answer the question of who or what we are enslaved to. What are we living for? What is it that motivates me? What is it that occupies my time, my thoughts, my energy? And I think that's a question we all need to be honest about. We can say we live for God, and that we're owned by Him, and that He's our master and we're His slave. But our actions speak louder than words. say, well, God owns everything I've got. Really? Does He? This is a question that we all have to struggle with. Secondly, do we understand that God is our master, loves us, cares for us, and wants nothing but His best for us? Sometimes we have this idea well, that God blesses so-and-so and God blesses so-and-so over there and God blesses over there, but I oh, poor, poor me, woe is me, God's not blessing me. God wants nothing but His best. But along with that comes the reality that sometimes there are things that hinder God's blessing. Namely, our lack of obedience. Namely, our sinfulness. You say, well, I pray and I ask God to do this or that, and God seemingly doesn't answer. Well, maybe He doesn't, maybe he doesn't answer because He's not listening. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Sometimes it's my own sinfulness that hinders God from hearing my prayer. And Proverbs reminds us that he that covereth a matter is not wise and shall not prosper. The bottom line is when I cover sin or try to hide my sin rather than dealing with it and repenting it, God says, you're not going to be blessed. But at the core of who God is, He wants what's best for us as His people, as His possession, as His property. Number three, if God is your master, if God is your master, are you committed to serving Him and fulfilling His will more than your own? Those are difficult questions. Who or what owns you? Who or what is your master? Do you understand that God is our master, loves us, cares for us, and wants his best for us? And if God is our master, are you committed to serving him and living for him? We have to be honest about it. Because the bottom line is things would be so much different if God truly had all of us. Rather than the leftovers, 
rather than the inconvenience of when it's convenient to serve Him. We all have opportunities. It's an amazing thing. From time to time, someone will say to me, Pastor, I just don't know where I fit in. I I don't know what I can do. And all I can say is, do you want to serve, find what needs to be done, and join in? Nobody gets a monopoly on, on positions at a church, right? It's not my ministry. It's not, you know, Paul's organ. It's not, you know, whatever area of service we're in. It's not ours. It's God's. Right? We understand that, right? So if God is our master and we're his slaves, we're all about doing his work. It doesn't matter who gets the glory, right? It's all about him. So the question is, if I wanted to join in what he's doing, it's not about convincing God to do what I want him to do. See, a slave doesn't get that privilege. Hey, uh, hey, master, I've got this great idea. First of all, could you get the ball and chain off? And then uh, i got these other ideas. Uh, no. We are enslaved to him. He is our master. And it's not about doing what we want to do. It's all about doing what he wants us to do. And I find in my own life, it's my selfishness that gets in the way. It's my own selfishness. So who or what owns you? What is it that you're living for? Do you understand that God wants nothing but His best for you? But there are sometimes things that hinder that. And number three, if God is our master, are you committed to serving and living for Him? Let's pray.